Today's episode is sponsored by Wondery's new podcast, Death of a Starlet. I know that my listeners love true crime, and today I'm going to tell you about Death of a Starlet, Wondery's newest miniseries about Playboy Playmate of the Year, Dorothy Stratton, a series I think just might be your next obsession. In August of 1980, Dorothy Stratton was found dead in the home of her estranged husband, shot in the face at close range. She was just 20 years old, the girl next door with a shy smile and whispery voice who didn't know her own beauty. But Hugh Hefner did. To him, she was his next Marilyn Monroe. To famed Hollywood director Peter Bogdanovich, she was his dream starlet. And to her husband, Paul Snyder, she was his meal ticket to fortune and fame. These three ambitious men needed her. One of them murdered her. I'm about to play you a brief clip from the show, but while you're listening, be sure to subscribe to Death of a Starlet on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or if you want to binge all six episodes right now, join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. The link is in the show notes. Wondery, feel the story. Death of a Starlet by Hollywood and Crime contains depictions of violence and strong language. Please be advised. Thursday, August 14th, 1980, 11 p.m. Private detective Mark Goldstein sits alone in his car staring at a nondescript two-story house on a quiet street in West Los Angeles. The guy who lives in the house hired him to tail his wife. She's having an affair. Passing headlights reflect off the windshield and then fade away. Goldstein unrolls the window and a curl of cigarette smoke spirals into the night. He squints at the two cars in front of the house. They've been parked there since noon. The woman he's looking for must be in there, but what are they doing inside? That's the question Goldstein has been asking himself all day. The two roommates got back a few hours ago, and it's been completely quiet since then. At 11.30 p.m., Goldstein decides to do something he rarely does. Inside the house, Steve Kushner and his roommate Patty are sprawled out on opposite ends of the couch when they hear the phone ring. Patty answers, then passes it to Steve. Uh, Steve Kushner here. Steve doesn't know the caller is sitting in a car just outside the house. Uh, Kushner, it's Mark Goldstein. I need to speak to Paul. Is he there? Uh, Sorry, I haven't seen him all day. He's got to be in there. I'm looking at his car. Can you check? Kushner sighs, grabs his beer, and walks downstairs to Paul's bedroom. He doesn't come down here often. Paul Snyder likes his privacy, and lately Paul's been particularly moody. Kushner feels along the hallway for the light switch and flips it on. The door is closed. He presses his ear to the door. Nothing. Paul? You in there? There's a guy on the phone says he needs to talk to you. It's quiet. Paul? All right, I'm coming in. It takes a moment for his eyes to adjust. When they do, he's not sure what he's looking at. There's blood everywhere. On the wall. On the floor. Krishna's eyes open wide. There are two dead bodies 
both of them nude. Is that Paul? The face is so mangled he can't tell, and there's a woman lying across the corner of the bed. Her head is almost unrecognizable through the gore. Then he sees the long blonde hair. Oh, God. He turns and bumps into Patty. Jesus, don't, don't, don't go in there. Fifteen minutes later, Private Detective Mark Goldstein stands in the living room, the phone cradled in the crook of his shoulder while he smokes. Kushner sits on the couch with his head in his hands. The other roommate, Patty, is curled up in an armchair, staring at the TV with vacant eyes. The police are on their way. Goldstein is now waiting to speak to someone else who needs to know what's happened. Finally, he hears the man's voice on the other end. He takes a breath. Mr. Hefner? It's Mark Goldstein. I'm a private detective. I've been working for Paul Snyder. Uh, listen, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, Mr. Hefner. I'm really sorry. It's about one of your playmates, Dorothy Stratton. When he's done speaking, there's a long pause. Then the line goes dead. Less than 12 hours later, what Goldstein tells Hugh Hefner will be all over the news. Playboy Magazine's 1980 Playmate of the Year has been found shot to death. What nobody knows yet is why. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police the arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder. Parents and their children can sometimes have a tumultuous relationship, but very few take things to the extreme of cold-hearted murder. On December 10th, 2003, a son who felt unloved made a devious plan to get back at his parents and make sure they finally saw him. So, if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Thomas Bartlett, Bart Whitaker, born December 31st, 1979, started his rap sheet at a pretty young age. He was seen as a troublemaker and was forced to leave his high school after committing a number of burglaries with his classmates. A psychologist evaluated the teen and found that he was experiencing the beginning symptoms of paranoid disorder. A later evaluation would note that after high school, Bart was given anything he wanted and more. He was spoiled and overindulged, all while his delusional thoughts continued. From what I could tell, Bart's parents, Kent and Patricia, answered his behavioral and psychological issues with material and financial goods. He had a few luxury vehicles, a fully funded admission to Baylor University and Sam Houston State University, a lakeside townhouse in Willis, Texas, and an $80,000 trust fund from his grandparents. They didn't know what to do to help their child, and throwing money at the problem did seem to placate Bart, at least on the surface. In 2001, Kent and Patricia found out that their son had a plan to kill them. A college friend had tipped off the police about the murder plot, who, of course, contacted the Whitakers. They couldn't believe it. 
Sure, Bart had his issues, but they were never serious enough to consider murder. They talked to Bart and he simply said it was a joke that got taken too seriously. They believed him, of course, and moved on with their lives because how could their sweet 22-year-old boy possibly want them dead? On December 10th, 2003, two years after the misunderstanding with his college buddy and police, the Whitaker family took Bart out to a fancy dinner to celebrate the end of his final exams and his upcoming graduation. In reality, Bart had already dropped out of school, a fact he kept to himself as he accepted a $4,000 Rolex as a graduation gift. While the family sat at the restaurant in Stafford, a man named Chris Brashear, clad in all black in a ski mask, entered the Whitaker home, grabbed a gun and ammunition from the lockbox, staged a burglary, and waited for the family to return. When they pulled into the driveway, Bart said he needed to go back to his car to retrieve his cell phone, telling his family to head on into the house. Kevin Whitaker, Bart's younger brother, entered the home first. He was shot once through the chest and fell to the floor. The same happened to Patricia as she walked through the threshold of their home. Kent rushed to help his son and was met with a bullet to the shoulder that shattered his humerus. Then came Bart, who convincingly struggled with the masked assailant and was shot in the left arm before the killer made his escape through the back door, jumping over the neighbor's fence and disappearing into the night. Kevin Whitaker died within a few minutes of being shot, while Patricia died on the way to the hospital. Kent and Bart survived the attacks and gave their accounts to the police. Kent said he first thought the attacker was a friend of one of his sons, who was playing a prank, while Bart said the attacker was a black man, a stranger who he had never seen before. When news of the murders went public, the citizens went wild with panic. The city where the Whitakers lived, Sugarland, Texas, was not the place where random attacks took place. In fact, when the 911 operator told police that four people in Sugarland had been attacked, he laughed, thinking it was a joke. And when the investigation first began, police commented on how unlikely the Whitakers were as victims. Everyone they talked to described them as the perfect family, loving parents, good money, and successful sons. But as they started to dive deeper, they found that maybe the perfect family wasn't so perfect. First, they found out that Bart had lied about graduating college, that the celebration that night was completely unwarranted and based on their son's lies, and he had been spending his tuition on some form of recreation. Then came a testimony that would solidify what police were starting to realize. Five days after the murder, a man named Adam Hip came forward and said that his friend Bart tried to solicit him to shoot Kent and Patricia Whitaker two years before. This is the plot that the Whitakers were made aware of years before, but chose to believe Bart when he said it was all a bad joke. Adam went on to say that he had a diagram of the house's layout and showed them where the trigger man was supposed to lie in wait. He knew this because it was the same plan Bart had come up with two years before. Police bugged Bart's phone, cleared Adam as a suspect, and began focusing on two other acquaintances who could possibly be the shooter. Co-workers of Bart's at the Bentwater Yacht and Country Club, Steve Champagne and Chris Brashear. The boys were brought in, denied any involvement, and provided DNA samples. Meanwhile, the police secretly bugged their phones as well as enlisted the help of Adam to try and get Bart to admit to his involvement in his family's death. Finally, a year and a half after the shootings, Stephen Champagne admitted that Bart had hired him to help in the murder plot. 
that he was the one who staked out the Whitakers at the graduation party and called Chris Bashir when they left the restaurant, even driving the getaway car when Chris made it out of the home. In return for their help, Bart had promised them $1 million of the life insurance payout he was owed. Stephen then led police to a spot where a bag had been discarded. Inside was a chisel with paint matching the gun safe in the Whitaker home, a glove that matched one left behind at the murder scene, and a water bottle containing Chris Brashear's DNA. Stephen and Chris were both arrested, but Bart, who had helped himself to thousands of dollars of his dad's cash, fled to Mexico, changing his name to Rudy Rios. While in Mexico, Bart had started over. He got a job, met a girl, and settled into his life, convincing everyone that the bullet wound in his arm came from his military service in Afghanistan. But ultimately, his greed would be his undoing. Police offered a $10,000 reward for any information on Bart's whereabouts, and Rudy Rios couldn't resist. Bart Whitaker was finally arrested and taken back to the United States. Bart, who was refused a plea bargain, was brought to trial in March of 2007, where his lawyers attempted to argue his mental state, as well as the fact that he didn't actually pull the trigger that killed his family. His father, who had only narrowly escaped with his life, pleaded with the jury not to deliver him a death sentence. The jury convicted Thomas Bart Whitaker of capital murder under the Texas law. Chris Brashear, the gunman, was convicted and given a life sentence in a plea bargain. While behind bars, Bart told interviewers that he committed the murders because he felt inadequate and thought his parents didn't love him anymore. Bart appealed his death sentence on the grounds of ineffective counsel, prosecutorial misconduct, arbitrariness of the death penalty, and cruelty of the lethal injection. His appeal was dismissed in 2017, and his execution was scheduled for February 22, 2018. He continued to fight, stating that his execution would only re-victimize his father, who had forgiven him and wrote a letter to the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles asking for clemency. The board met with him for 30 minutes and unanimously recommended clemency to Governor Greg Abbott. Two days before he was supposed to walk to the execution chamber, the governor agreed to commute Bart Whitaker's sentence to life without the possibility of parole on the grounds that he waives his right to any further appeal. The call came to the prison just 45 minutes before Bart's scheduled execution. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on December 11th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.